This morning, I am speaking regarding a very shocking title for this sermon, which I have called Christian Sinners. But first, let us pray. O loving God, as we open thy word, infill us with thy spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have chosen a very beautiful text this morning, found in Hebrews, in Ephesians, the second chapter, and verses 4 to 8, which reads, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Some time ago, I received a very pathetic request from a faithful Seventh-day Adventist living in a nearby conference. Apparently, her pastor is a believer in the new theology. She stated that her pastor is continually referring to the members of his congregation as he preaches, using the term Christian sinners. This is a term that you will never find in the scriptures or in the spirit of prophecy. And she pleaded, Would you please explain what our pastor means when he refers to his flock as Christian sinners? Well, how would you answer this question? You know, and I know, that anyone who takes the name of a Christian professes to be Christ-like, in all that he or she does. And I ask you, was Christ a sinner? Absolutely not. Christ never sinned, for he was sinless. Then, how can a person who professes to be a Christian openly boast that he is a Christian sinner? Well, let's see if we can discover the answer. From the Word of God and inspiration this morning, I will point out clearly what God's amazing grace teaches us so that we will clearly understand what this pastor means 
when he proclaims his members to be Christian sinners. Let us begin by asking a question. What is grace? No doubt you have heard many a definition. For grace, being somewhat like a multi-faced diamond, it shines with a different luster depending upon which angle that you are viewing the diamond. Inspiration has defined grace as an attribute of God, and he has many of them. In the book My Life Today, page 100, I read, We would never have learned the meaning of the word grace had we not fallen. God's lo God loves the sinless angels who do his service and are obedient to all of his commands. But he does not give them grace. These heavenly beings know not of grace. They have never needed it, for they have never sinned. Grace is an attribute of God shown to undeserving human beings. And in another view of inspiration, we read in Selected Messages 1, 331, grace is unmerited favor. I like that. Then she goes on to talk about these angels of God. She says, and I quote, the angels who know nothing of sin do not understand what it is to have grace exercised toward them. But our sinfulness calls for the exercise of grace from a merciful God. It was grace that sent our Savior to seek us as wanderers and bring us back to the fold. How beautifully that is stated. You see, grace is unmerited favor, something divine. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is freely given to all who ask for it. And it brings an assurance of salvation, saved by grace, the glorious gospel. But now Satan is attempting to have another gospel preached from our pulpits. Let me illustrate. Anyone who knows anything about weaving knows that the lengthwise threads in the loom are called the warp, and the crosswise threads are called the woof. These two threads are crossed and interwoven, producing fabric. Now, if anyone should try to manufacture a piece of cloth by using only the woof, there could be no fabric. Or suppose you try to produce a fabric using only the warp threads, there would then be no fabric because it would fall 
apart in a tangled mess. If we would consider anyone who would attempt to do so as being a fool, to manufacture cloth without cross threads. Yet, there are theologians in our day who are attempting to separate the threads of the law from the threads of the gospel, which God has declared should be intertwined as the warp and the woof. For the Lord's Servant writes in Review and Herald, September 29, 1891, the law and the gospel are in perfect harmony. They are interwoven as the warp and the woof. Yet, we find men today attempting to teach a new theology that the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, both having the same author, are to be separated. And that also includes faith and works, that they must be separated, which inspiration teaches us go hand in hand as two oars used in a rowboat. Surely, we would do well to remember the marriage ceremony in which the minister states, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And just as there are millions of marriages that are separating each year, so there are theologians who are attempting to create another gospel, but may I remind you that when you develop another gospel, you also acquire another Jesus who is unable to save you from sins. Paul has warned of this. I read Galatians 1.6. I marvel that you, ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel. And this is exactly what he is talking about, the preaching of another Jesus. I read again from 2 Corinthians 11.4, For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. And so thus the new theology of Christian sinners teaches of a Jesus who would save you in your sins rather than saving you from your sins. This is a faulty understanding of what constitutes the true gospel. Such teachings insist that the gospel is unconditional, that there are no conditions whatever to man's reception of Christ, that salvation is received by believing only, 
that sanctification, the imparted righteousness of Christ, is not a part of man's salvation. Ellen White puts it very bluntly. Review and Herald, November 29, 1887. Men are trying to make an easy way to heaven than that which the Lord has provided. And so God continues to counsel those who would be persuaded by a new, easy, new gospel. In Patriarchs and Prophets 124, she says, Men hang with admiration upon the lips of eloquence while it teaches that the transgressor shall not die, that salvation may be secured without obeying the law of God. Now, before we proceed, let me clarify that in pointing out the error of the new theology that is currently being preached among us. I do not want to diminish the emphasis that they place upon the divine love of God. God's love is not a part of the message I feel compelled to fault. For the love of God is to stand as a beautiful truth. In this sermon, I am dealing with those aspects of the gospel that are being omitted. For this new theology teaches only a half-truth. The divine truth of God reveals that there are conditions to being saved by grace. Let me make it simple to understand. We all believe in Jesus, that he existed and has power to save, and we believe that we are saved by believing this. But what about Satan? He believed Jesus existed. And he knows by personal experience of his divine power all about Christ. For did he not take Jesus in his arms and place him on the pinnacle of the temple and personally witness his divine power to witness his temptations? Satan believes in Christ and his power, but this knowledge does not save Satan. And neither will your only believe knowledge save you for his coming kingdom. For there are conditions to the gospel of grace. Let me explain by a personal experience. I was driving my car in a city of another state in which I had never been before. As I was driving along, suddenly I heard a siren. I looked in my mirror and I saw red lights. Pulling over to the curb, I found myself under arrest, for I had been driving 45 miles per hour in a speed zone marked 25 
miles per hour. Now, since I was out of state, the policeman told me to follow him to the police station. Soon, I found myself before the judge. I heard the policeman read his charge against me. Then the judge asked me what I had to say for myself. I told him I was traveling through his city for the very first time, and I was spending my time looking at the places of interest, and I had failed to see the posted speed signs. I told him I was guilty, but I was sorry I had broken the law and would be more careful in the future when visiting his city again. The judge smiled understandingly, for he believed in my sincerity. He dismissed the charge, and I walked out of his court a free man under grace. The policeman who had arrested me did nothing, for I was under the grace of the court. Now, for an evaluation of this experience. When I got back into my car, I had to drive down the very same street in which I had been arrested. Was I now free to drive 45 miles an hour down the same street, which has signs posted 25 miles an hour? <laughs> you know the answer. If I did, that same policeman would have arrested me again. But this is exactly what many new theological teachers are teaching. For they are boldly doing with God's amazing grace what I have just illustrated by stating that they believe that God's grace is continually forgiving them for the same sin if they believe in God's ever-readiness to forgive them. And this is why the pastor was addressing his members as Christian sinners. Since this new theology teaches that Christians can't stop sinning till Jesus comes, for they believe that they are like drivers of cars who have an obsession to drive faster than the law permits. Why? Because they can't help it. They were born this way. There is nothing that they can do to change their actions. They believe that the judge will forgive them every time they are caught. How foolish is such reasoning? To believe that God will continually forgive day after day, month after month, year after year for the same sins because they can't stop, because they were born with a desire to sin. So we can't stop doing that which is wrong. I ask those who reason in such a way, if you can't learn to overcome sin in this life, how can God translate you to heaven? 
Will he do so in the hope that somehow you will stop sinning all of a sudden because you have been placed in a land where we are told that sin will never exist? Could it be that the new theology so-called Christians who call themselves Christian sinners have overlooked the great truth and mark this closely that the God who commands us to keep his law has also provided the power to obey that we might keep his law? Again, let me illustrate. Some years ago, in the state of Colorado, a coal dealer was busy in his office. When he was called to another room to answer an emergency telephone call. While he was discussing a very serious problem, he had reason to reach into his hip pocket to secure his billfold which contained the pertinent information he needed. In doing so, he discovered his wallet was missing, and suddenly a great fear fell upon him, for he remembered that as he had left his room where his billfold lay on the office counter and contained $500 in cash, that as he left his office, a man had stepped into the room on business who had previously spent time in the penitentiary, for he had been convicted of a robbery in stealing $140,000 in cash just three blocks from this very spot. And now, this former criminal was alone in his office where the billfold containing $500 lay on the counter. What a simple matter it would be for this man to pick up the billfold and leave with the money. But friend, this man wasn't even tempted. You see, the coal mine man had nothing to fear about this stranger. Even though he stood waiting at the counter with the billfold in plain sight and with several of the $100 bills protruding, which could be seen. How come this former thief did not touch the money? Why? I'll tell you why. He had been saved by grace, and the Lord had given him a new heart and had written his holy law within his heart. The commandment, Thou shalt not steal, was now a part of this very man. He had received Christ, and the grace of God made him obedient. <clears throat> when Jesus came into this world to save sinners, he did not come to save people in their sins, but to save them from their sins. While keeping the commandments will not save a man, and I state, in fact, it is impossible to keep them by oneself, but the grace of God 
not only forgives a sinner, but it provides a marvelous power of grace by which victory can be obtained over every sin. God never intended that there should be in his church today such persons who call themselves Christian sinners. Take the example of David. The Holy Word describes him as one who had committed a double sin, that of adultery and murder. Yet, when he repented, he found God's grace sufficient to help him to partake of God's marvelous pardon. And also, with the grace came the power to obey, so that he never again committed adultery or murder, for he became a man fashioned after God's character, so that he could say, as I read in Psalms 119, Thy law is truth, thy commandments are my delight. I cried unto the Lord, Save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. And we heartily agree, because we follow a Christ that fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly, for he had not broken one of the Ten Commandments. And when he died on the cross, he died for our sins. But what a glorious truth. Christ was the sinless Son of God. He never broke one of the Ten Commandments so that his death could be acceptable to God for our sins, yours and mine. He died in our place. How shallow the thought that since Christ fulfilled the law, that he kept the law for us so that we need not worry if we break the law. For he saved all men at the cross. And all we have to do is to believe that he kept the law for us. Therefore, we can sin and yet bear his name as Christian sinners. You know, friend, this is really akin to blasphemy. For we read in Romans 6.15, Paul said, What then shall we say, because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Yet this new theology teaches the concept that because we believe Christ did it all for us on the Calvary's cross, we can boldly label ourselves Christian sinners. Let me read it to you, as I find it in the book Beyond Belief, pages 163 to 166. There is a world of difference between sinning, notice these words now, between sinning under the law and sinning under grace. 
Then it goes on. Stumbling under grace, falling into sin, does not deprive us of justification, neither does it bring condemnation. Could you ever believe that such words would ever be printed on our presses? This is none other than the new terminology of which I am speaking that pertains to Christian sinners. But God has clearly proclaimed who his people are in these last days. It is written with unquestionable clearness. Revelations 14, verse 12. Here is the patient of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of Jesus. Now this brings us to another wonderful truth found in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, verses eight to 10. How beautifully it is written. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I came after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now to fully understand this verse, let me tell you a story. Suppose I go to purchase a new home, and I find the dream house that I've always wanted. Oh, it's more than I can afford but I'm captivated by its beauty, its loveliness, and all of the fine details. It's just what I want. I'm cautioned, of course, by the builder that this lovely house is very expensive, in fact, too expensive for my income. But it makes no difference. I sign on the dotted line, and I move into the house. But before long, I discover that I'm caught. For it's impossible for me to make the payments. I'm in real trouble. What can I do? I have no money left in the bank. Well, maybe after all the builder is such a loving, kind fellow, maybe he will accept my worthless checks without cashing them and let me to continue to live in my new house? How ridiculous, you say. But isn't it just as ridiculous? Because we are unable to keep God's law by ourselves, that we should think that he will accept us as Christian sinners month after month? But back to my illustration. This indeed is a godly builder. He doesn't change the requirements of my contract for me to be able to live in my house. 
He makes it possible for me to live in my new home by giving the money that I need to make my monthly payments. All I have to do is to ask for it. And this we understand is the power of his grace that will enable us to fulfill the divine obligations. Friend, this is exactly what the Savior has done for us. Everyone wants eternal life. And the basis of eternal life is obedience. Of course, the commandments are impossible to obey in our own strength, for they are beyond our sinful nature to keep. But Jesus says, I will help you do the impossible. I will supply you with a sufficient amount of my grace that through this power you can do what you could not do before. For you see, as a man, I was able to obtain this divine power from my Father so that I could obey. And so, I will now give you of this same power, this omnipotent power, this divine power, that will make it possible for you also to keep the law. Remember, this problem that we have today existed in Old Testament times. The children of Israel promised to keep God's law, but they did not ask God to help them. And God saw that they could not do it by themselves. And when they failed, he gave them a new covenant, a new agreement in which he would put his law within their hearts. And then, through God's grace, it would be possible to live victoriously. But the reception of such saving grace depends on the degree of faith that is exercised <coughs> by the believer. In volume 5, page 48, we read, Our growth in grace, notice, our growth in grace, depends on our union with Christ and the degree of faith we exercise in him. Here is the source of our power. This explains why those five foolish virgins who indeed call themselves Christian sinners came to the door and found it locked. The door of salvation was shut. Why? because they lacked oil of grace in their lamps. Therefore, their redemption was not consummated. In volume 4, page 89, we read, True grace, which is of unestimable value, and which will endure the test of trial 
and adversity is only obtained through faith and humble, prayerful obedience. And so now you ask, how can we obtain this needed grace? One of the clearest statements I have ever found is found in the book Amazing Grace, page 318. I saw how this grace could be obtained. Now this is interesting. She says, go to your closet and there alone plead with God. And what are you to say? I'm reading. Christ in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And be in earnest, be sincere. For she says, fervent prayer availeth much. And then these words, Jacob-like wrestle in prayer, agonize. Jesus in the garden swept great drops of blood. So you must make an effort. Do not leave your closet until you feel strong in God. Then watch. And just as long as you watch and pray, you can keep these evil besetments under, and the grace of God can and will appear in you. It's so simple, yet it is so profound. Reading on in the next page, God calls upon all who will come and drink of the waters of life freely. The power of God is the one element of efficiency in the grand work of obtaining the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is in accordance with the divine plan that we follow every ray of light given us of God. Man can accomplish nothing without God, and God has arranged his plan so as to accomplish nothing in the restoration of the human race without the cooperation of the human with the divine. The very part man is required to sustain is immeasurably small, yet in the plan of God it is just the part that is needed to make the work a success. So never, never be misled by this new theology that we can be saved as Christian sinners. It's a doctrine of the devil to lead you to join him in his coming destruction. You see, sanctification is imparted to us and accomplished in us through the Holy Spirit. This is a part of our salvation from sin, which is being omitted in the new theology that teaches that sanctification has nothing to do with your salvation. 
Yet Paul states positively in Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the work that God does in our souls, if we will let him, by regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. For he continues in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. How? Through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. Paul states we are indeed to have salvation through sanctification, that it is a part of the gospel of salvation from sin. And Ellen White agrees in Selected Messages, Volume 2, 381. Salvation is a living union with Jesus Christ to be renewed in the heart. And she states further in Series B, 226, the world is seeking for those things that perish with the using. Its diligence and activity are not exerted to obtain the salvation. And notice how? that is gained through the imparted righteousness of Christ. And so, friend, salvation is received through the imparted righteousness, which we all know is bestowed upon us through sanctification. Notice carefully in Signs of the Times, June 17, 1903, by his death we were reconciled to God. But by his life, as it is wrought out in our life, we shall be saved. And so we are saved only by his life as we allow it to be lived out in our life. Only then can Jesus be our pattern as well as our substitute. This is scriptural. That is what Paul meant in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is why also he says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. That is why we read in the book that I may know him, page 107, Christ is of no value to us, unless he is formed within the hope of glory.
in Review and Herald, Volume 3, page 434. As the blood circulates through the body in a vitalizing current, so Christ must be received into the heart. What will avail any soul unless Christ is received into the heart by faith? And then from Desire of Ages 389, Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it, unless it becomes a part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we do not know him as a personal savior. And so the gospel is not to be a force outside of the human heart that results in sanctification. It is to be a living force within that changes the inner life. And this is what it is meant by Christ in you that bears the fruit. In Review and Herald, September 25, 27, 1881, she says, The gospel of Christ is the good news of grace, which enables to render obedience to the law of God. Did you notice those words, to render, to enable? You see, salvation is more than justification. It is more than forgiveness. True salvation renews the nature and clothes the soul in garments of righteousness, bringing the sinner to his right mind and teaching him and fitting him to be a laborer together with God. In Selected Messages 3, page 155, we have a definition of Christian sinners and what they believe and what they teach. For she says, this goody-goody religion that makes light of sin and that is forever dwelling upon the love of God to the sinner encourages the sinner to believe that God will save him while he continues in sin that he knows to be sin. This is the way that many are doing who profess to believe present truth. For the truth is kept apart from their life. And this is the reason why there is no more power to convict and convert the soul. There must be a straining of every nerve and spirit and muscle to leave the world, its customs, its practices, and its fashions. If you put away sin and exercise living faith, the riches of heaven's blessings will be yours. And so I conclude. Never, never let any preacher address you as a Christian sinner. But praise God and thank him for his marvelous grace that can give you power, divine power, omnipotent power that will enable you to become victorious 
over every sin.